Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You know, we get lots and lots of letters here. We get letters. And sometimes we get guests just by begging and pleading. Well, they, they beg us or we beg them? or how does we, work? Usually we beg them, but sometimes they just come along and say, sure, why not? And sometimes they write letters to yeah, us. No, I would talk about uh, the extraterrestrial. Oh, see, now, of course, we're going to get the emails from people who say, why are you talking about these things? Why are you making fun of your previous guests? Why are you saying bad things about Sean David Horn? Why are you doing that? Why would you do such a thing? It's disrespectful. Do the words they deserve it have some meaning? Well, I guess when it comes right down to it, people who make outrageous claims are going to get taken to task by us. That's the bottom line about what we do here. Is that, isn't that what we do here? Well, it's the difference because they can go on these other shows and get softball questions. And, of course, that's not going to give you out there, ladies and gentlemen, any information about what's going on. It's Rob McConnell. Hey, Batman. He's got a guy <laughs> named Batman working for him. Not Christian Bale. I don't know. You know, where's our Batman? I, I kind of like the whole uh, original Tim Burton Batman, but you know, that's just me. You didn't like Batman Begins? Oh, that was actually really good. That was good, but they didn't have Prince doing the soundtrack for it, which the first Batman movie had the great Prince soundtrack, had Tim Burton directing, and let's not forget the pull of that movie. Jack Nicholson as the Joker, one of the best pieces of casting ever in a comic book movie. <laughs> <laughs> what about Heath Ledger? Do you think he's going to make a good Joker? I've seen some still images of him as the Joker, and it's almost as if they're trying to recreate the look of Brandon Lee in The Crow, which that's one of my favorite dark movies is The Crow. I absolutely adore that movie. And actually, when it came out originally in theaters, I saw it 13 times in movie theaters, 13 times. It's so sad that he died. Brandon really tragic. One of the most tragic stories ever about a death on a movie set. Very, very sad story. But the, the pictures I've seen of Heath Ledger, wasn't he in that really bad movie called The Patriot? I think he was. He was like the oldest son. This is the Paracast, right? Yes. And by the way, speaking of letters, we get letters, too, that result in a guest coming on the show. And maybe you can tell us about that before we introduce that guest. Well, after we had... Um, oh, God, I don't want to even say this. Well, we had on a... Uh, <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, David Biedney is now losing his mind. What's left uh, of it? Yeah, lose what you've never had. No, um, we had uh, <laughs> the only serious researchers regarding Roswell. The only true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we had on uh, Don Schmidt and Tom Carey, who will I'm never sure come on again after up, hearing this episode. Well, you know what it was. We actually, I thought we treated them really well in terms of not nailing Schmidt on his claims about his background, not really giving them a hard time about some of the statements they were making. Uh, you know, these guys have spent time researching the Roswell situation, and I give them that. You know, they made the claim that they're the only serious researchers. I'm not so sure about that. I, I invoke the spirits of other people who are pretty well entrenched in the Roswell situation in terms of research. But, yeah, we got a really interesting email from a gentleman by the name of Frank Warren, who's a very well-known UFO researcher who actually, uh, I guess, had heard the episode and sent us an email where he said, and I, and I will quote, Morning, gentlemen. After listening to the August 12th episode with friend and colleague Dennis Balthaser, I'm compelled to point out that in regarding the 
Halt Affidavit, specifically its origin, you guys, quote-unquote, broke the story as to how the affidavit was performed. And so basically what Frank said is that in the show, during the interview, uh, Schmidt basically came out and said that the affidavit, quote, was prepared. It was based on things that Walter told us in confidence for a number of years. And the whole idea of that was that perhaps... Walter Hawk didn't necessarily generate all of the content in that affidavit. Now, there is the other very strange aspect of this that I'd like to bring up with uh, Frank today, which is that when that um, Larry King show was on, Walter Hawk's daughter said that there was nothing in the affidavit about him seeing bodies, which we know is actually not correct. We know that in the affidavit he mentioned seeing a body, and that's a really weird inconsistency that I actually, in getting emails about the whole interview from Schmidt himself. There was a bunch of email that went back and forth between uh, uh, Schmidt and, and, and me, and he was very upset with the fact that we had Dennis Balthaser on to talk about his thoughts about the affidavit. And basically, in this set of emails that went back and forth, I asked him, hey, you know, how do you explain the whole inconsistency between what was in the affidavit and what Halt's daughter said on the Larry King show, and that's when the email stopped. So I think that's a very interesting and very revealing thing. Look, Gene, let's get something clear for our audience right now. I think we're both of the opinion, and I'll just speak for myself here, but you can chime in and, and agree or disagree with me. I think we're both of the opinion that something did happen at Roswell, something unusual. At least that's the conclusion I've come to, that something definitely strange very strange happened that day. Okay, fair enough. That's certainly in keeping with what I believe. Go ahead. You know, do we know the specifics of it? No. Are we ever going to know the specifics of what happened that day? Uh, perhaps not at this point. I would agree with people like Mac Tonys and Paul Kimball, who think that there's just uh, too much distance in time between us and the event to actually get any really truly clear understanding of what really happened that day. But that did something happen? Yeah, I think something did happen. Are we ever going to be able to get any hard evidence? Well, outside of finding the room underground where they keep the stuff they found, I don't think so. And and that's a very frustrating thing on many levels, but unfortunately, coming up with hard evidence seems to be next to impossible. The other thing that bothers me about Roswell is we can't make it the case that the entire prospect or possibility of UFO reality rests yeah. only on Roswell. Because if you do that, then you create a house of cards. And if Roswell turns out to be something that you can't prove, and yeah. I suspect that's quite true as you do as well, because it's just so old, the trail is so old, then where does the UFO study go from there? And the answer is there are lots of other cases out there that might be in some ways more compelling than Roswell, and we've got to stop making this the house of cards because we are in danger of a domino effect. So tell us about the guest who's coming on in just a moment. Well, we have Frank Warren coming on the show, the guy who sent us the email, who's been doing UFO research for a number of years. And um, in doing a little bit of research on him, I find that he has a lot of opinions about a lot of interesting cases. He's got a lot of thoughts about what happened at uh, O'Hare Airport last November, which I think is a really fascinating case, unlike the moron on another radio show who says, Batman, I think that the O'Hare case is there because it was meant to drum up interest in the Roswell anniversary. I mean, this is what this inbred idiot said on his radio show. He, and, and, you know, let our listeners go and find that show and, 
I'm, we're not going to promote this this guy. Especially but, if someone who brings on someone on the show and gives him the nickname Batman. 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 No, it's like this. I'm Burn Batman, you're Robin. Forget it. That's right. Yeah. Um, Coming up next on the Paracast. Not Batman. Not Batman. Not no. Robin. Not Adam West, but Frank Warren. Not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com, hit subscribe. When you come to the PayPal page, just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO. 6242, leave me a message, I will call you back, or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's, I listen to the Paracast, here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Spangler and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Frank, how did you originally get involved in researching this uh, very unusual topic we call UFOs? Did you have some childhood experience that led you down this path? No, I didn't. I I would have to give that credit to my mother. She instilled uh, curiosity in me. She was a curious person. She was a reader. Consequently, I was curious about different things, read some early books uh, similar to some of the books that Stan uh, Friedman had read early on. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it get I, I think 
we are all of us are are can go down two paths or or uh, you know we're we're part of what our parents instill in us and we're also uh, part of the tribe of our tribal influence consequently our brains are are put in this box early on we we are our makeup is what what our tribe instills in in us i.e. society and the values that that our parents put into us so myself like like all of us initially you know we conform to what society dictates to us and any beliefs that that our parents put into us uh, I was raised by my mother. I was an only child, and uh, she instilled this curiosity in me. And consequently, I uh, I read about UFOs early on. I was very fascinated by the military aspect of it, and and uh, the research and the investigation that was done by the military for so long. And then the notion that there was nothing to this, and I thought, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would our government investigate something for 20 years, publicly, by the way, and then turn around and say, well, you know, uh, and, and not actually deny it, just say, well, it's not a threat to national security, and just put it by the wayside? It just didn't make sense. So for me, that began the trek. That made me ask more questions. And as you ask more questions and you seek those answers, you become enlightened, uh, as with anything. And I became knowledgeable about the subject and, and just never let it go. And that I became heavily involved in the early 70s. But for me also, I stuck with the military and or the, the official end of it. I was always interested in talking either to military personnel or police officers uh, you know, opposed to somebody that saw a distant light in the sky. I wanted to know what uh, what officialdom had to say about it. And then as that progressed, in my own personal opinion, I felt that early on things fell through the cracks. So things of a historic nature, uh, ufologically speaking, became very interesting to me. You know, today there's been a lot of practice. The, the, the powers that be, so to speak, are, are much better at hiding things than they were early on in what we deem as uh, uh, modern ufology, starting with, say, the Kenneth Arnold site. Or if you want to go before that, we could, we could go back to the Battle of Los Angeles, which is one of my pet projects anyway. But, and it's just never left me, it, it, and it's, it gets more exciting all the time, and we find <laughs> things continue to be uncovered all the time. Uh, and it's just mind-boggling. But uh, just along those lines, Frick, I mean, when you say that you've been looking into this for all these years and that you've actually reached some level of enlightenment about this, do you think that it's even possible, even after looking at it for as long as you have, to actually come to any real understanding of this phenomenon? Yes, I do. And, and I, in, in part, it's because of what, uh, where we are as, as back to society. Today, man's technology, I mean, everybody's walking around with a cell phone, a camera cell phone, uh, uh, video equipment, we, the, the Internet. We can now pass information around instantaneously around the world. Things are going to happen in a way that, that will go beyond what the government can deny. Uh, and they are happening. I mean, uh, and, and of course the government still denies it. I, I'll give you an instance. Uh, I don't know if you, you guys recall, but not too many months ago there was an incident in, in Africa. I don't recall the uh, exactly where. It, it's on my website, by the way. It got about 72 hours of, of heavy uh, news attention. It was a UFO crash. It went absolutely nuts. Then all of a sudden it went black. In Africa? Now, in Africa, yeah. Uh, I'd have to 
go back to the website for specifics, but uh, you know, my website is a platform for UFO reports that take place anywhere in the world. It's also a platform for me to, to put pen to paper, so to speak. But however, uh, this went on, went crazy for 72 hours. Now, ironically, I'm addicted to my to my counter on my website. I find it very interesting as to the ISPs, particularly the government ISPs, which I record, by the way, uh, that come to the website. When the first article broke about a crashed UFO, within five minutes apart, stacked on top of each other, I had a, I had NASA, I had uh, the DoD of Canada, uh, our Department of Defense uh, ISPs, I had Lawrence Livermore Laboratories, I had Sandia Laboratories, I had seven or eight government uh, uh, ISPs all stacked up on each other looking at that article by itself. Now I might add, uh, you know, the way that the counter is, it, it will monitor where, uh, you know, somebody's surfing the web, they're going from page to page or they're doing this. And there's a pattern that gets set, and you can see you can see when someone just stumbles across the website, and then they look around a little bit, and then they're on to the next website. Mm-hmm. These particular ISPs went to that specific article, and they went nowhere else, and they were all stacked up on uh, each other. Now, this went on with one of the forums I was involved in. Someone said, "Oh, well, that was a coincidence," and I said, "Look, that no." I've been monitoring this thing for over two years. There's math behind it. There's science behind it. This wasn't a coincidence. They went straight to that article and nowhere else. You know, I mean, conspiracy theorists will go nuts over this. The only other time I've seen that happen, and bear in mind there's over 1,500 articles on the website as we speak, is when I posted Scott's article on uh, on Aztec, Scott Ramsey's article. Same thing happened. I had dozens of Air Force uh, military ISPs go straight to that article and nowhere else. And I thought, wow, isn't this interesting? But wouldn't you, uh, and, you can, you know, and again, you can tell when somebody's just perusing the, the website, right. and they'll, they'll take a hit here, they'll go there, and then they're on to someplace else. But two times that's happened in, in 1,500 articles over a two-year period. Well, Frank, wouldn't presumably the military have better access to deeper levels of information about these episodes? Why would they go to your website to peruse your One, information? One would presume that, yes, and, but, yeah. and, and that's the million-dollar question. Is it to see what's out there publicly? Is it to see what's out on the Internet? Is it to see uh, what's being published uh, in, in regards to print uh, or just what's getting out there? Uh, and, again, within 72 hours, it all went away. Hmm. There was not another blip about this thing. Now, and again, you know, was it a satellite re-entering? Was it a meteor? You know, when I say UFO, I mean it verbatim, unidentified flying object. You know, just something occurs to me when you're mentioning the fact that you were getting traffic from government sources. And I'm wondering, of course, I don't assume that government is always smart about what they do. But why can't they just cover their tracks and have those IP numbers represent somebody's home? Why would they have to so transparently access your site? often thought the very same thing. Either it's not that big of a deal. Uh, it's been suggested that uh, somebody at one particular spot, say Lawrence Livermore, uh, may just have shared that information with uh, other people down the pike in their own personal interest, which, which most certainly happens. I mean, I've got literally hundreds of government and, uh, ISPs, uh, and, and obviously probably 95% of them are just personal interest from, from the individual. But that particular one got my attention. And, and it leaves 
questions. I don't have the answers for that. Most certainly, one would think that they could disguise their ISP if, in fact, they wanted to do so. If, in fact, they were even representative uh, in, in a government instance opposed to just an individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could have very well been, again, that maybe somebody just sent an email around and said, hey, look at this. Or, or possibly they knew of, uh, say, a, one of our satellites coming down and saying, look, it's already hit the media because I right. was one of the first ones to publish the information. Well, well, that's what I was thinking about in terms of, I think it was last year, there were uh, reports of a couple of objects coming down in Iran. And the first I heard of that, I thought, oh, these sound like either spy planes or spy drones that got out of control and fell to the ground. Well, and that, and in, in fact, uh, there were articles that suggested just that. And I believe the news agencies in Iran said just that, mm-hmm. that they were, in fact, spy drones. And, of course, that makes sense. Right. And, it go, you know, it goes back to the same thing. And, again, I use UFO in the verbatim. You know, the the better percentage of UFOs are identifiable, meteors or just unidentified uh, aircraft of some sort. Uh, but there's that small percentage uh, that defies that, uh, and that's the question. And, of right. course, out of that small percentage, the, the nuts and bolts craft is what interests me as a researcher. Well, sure. You'd always prefer to have a, a report of a daytime sighting of a metallic object that's moving in a non-standard fashion versus random lights in the sky at night. One of the things that's become clear is that... Which brings us to O'Hare. Wow. Now, the thing that, that really made me angry about O'Hare, now let's just forget, let's take ufology out of it. Let's take the mystique, the, the woo-woo part out of it. My president reminds me almost daily that we're at war. And, and although the casualties are now on the sixth and seventh page of the newspaper, still we're spilling American blood in another country. This was precipitated by an attack using our own planes in our airspace in various parts of the country, primarily New York City. Mm-hmm. When people that are in the identified flying object business, i.e., some of the best witnesses one could have about things that fly in the air, say something was in the second busiest airport in our country, if not the world, then that needs attention. Forget the rest of it. Something unidentified, which was witnessed by credible people in the identified flying object business, said, Look, we've got something here. This can be a danger. What was of course, the, the knee-jerk reaction to the FAA, which was proved later to be in error or a lie, was that they said they didn't get reports. We found out later, of course, that they did. Uh, something went on, and that needs to be taken with the utmost of seriousness. It, and that's what made me angry. And then, 72 hours after that, although everybody wanted to put the UFO spin on it and that stigma, Anderson Cooper 360, he does a little farcical comedy on the show. He's got Star Trek music in the background. He's mm-hmm. flipping. Fl- and the lights off and on. They've yeah, got one yeah. of the witnesses in silhouette on there, and he's making fun of this thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think his slogan is, we're trying to keep them on us. It's like, my God, man, how can you make fun of this thing when we've got an unknown, unidentified aircraft over the second busiest airport in the country, for God's sake? Yeah, he's an entertainer, uh, not a newsman. You, unfortunately, that's what he's going to do. Well, call. all news is now entertainment. They, they've taken the news out of it. It's a, it's a ratings game, sadly. Yeah, the new frontiers, you know, unfortunately, about that, 
that is that the internet completely lacks any sort of editorial filtration or control. So essentially, any kook can get up on the internet and post any kind of crap they want. And much, in a way, much that's like the media. Yes, this is well. True. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm the kind of person who says every day I love the internet, and I really do for a lot of different reasons. The democratization of communications is only a good thing. And you know, in the case of the O'Hare incident, it was the internet that allowed me to get involved in the research of the photographs that were coming out of what was reported to be the O'Hare incident. And in, in, in fact, Frank, one of the regular guests of the show, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Ritzman and myself, got very involved in doing the photographic analysis and even were able to contribute to the 155-page NARCAP report that came out just recently about what happened at O'Hare last year. And where's the um, media for that? Well, yeah, the media wasn't present. The long and short of the NARCAP report is that there should be concern that, indeed, there was an unidentified object over O'Hare Airport for about 20 minutes, and there were lots of credible witnesses that saw this thing. Where this gets complicated, quite frankly, is in the disinformation attempts that surfaced up around the O'Hare incident. And I brought it up on the show briefly, and I'll do it again. Well, that's um, the double-edged sword of the internet, well, certainly. But go ahead. Well, sure. I mean, basically, every bit of information has its equal and opposite reaction, which is disinformation. But it's pretty clear that something, at least to my mind, that something did indeed happen. And the fact of the matter is that the media picked up on it just because of the Hilkovich report that was uh, up on the Chicago Tribune website. They picked up, there was a little bit of momentum around it, and then it sort of died out, like most stories do. And unfortunately, that's a byproduct of the fact that, for the most part, certainly the American audience has an attention span of about a day. And, and that's, and, of course, and particularly the particularly if there's no video. But while we're on that, first off, we need to give credit where credit's due, and that goes with Peter Davenport of New Fork, because he contacted Hilkovich uh, of the Chicago Tribune, and had it not been for him, because the, the calls first went into New Fork from some of the witnesses, and he got the media on board with that. And, and quite frankly, I asked Peter Davenport to publish the original report just a few days after he received it, which he gave me permission to do so. So we published that back in, in November, and it started to get legs early on, uh, or, or back then. And then in January, that's when Chicago, uh, the Chicago paper picked it up. And, and, and of course, it, hey, look, you UFOs, that kind of thing, it sells newspapers, for lack of a better term. What's frustrating now, now we have some science. The, the NARCAP uh, report is out. My God, I, I'm so thoroughly impressed with that. Uh, this is what we as, as researchers strive for. This is what we want to show off uh, to mainstream science. This is what we want the media to pay attention to. But where are they when, when this comes about? This is what really needs to be heralded, uh, and they need to go back. Every one of those shows that, that gave the original report airtime needs to uh, put that report out there. In fact, for that matter, I'm, I'm trying to make noise about it as much as I can so that happens. Uh, and I think we all should because that report needs to be read and it needs to be broadcast just as much as the original UFO report was. Absolutely. That they, that they want to put the little the, the woo-woo stuff on. Yeah. We've got some science behind this thing and, and uh, certainly won't sell papers like the original story was, but this is the important uh, th this is what everybody clamors for uh, in, in terms of mainstream science. They say, well, show me something with some grit. Let's get away from, as Michael Shermer said, the, the blurry photographs, et cetera. Well, here it is. 
Come and look. Uh, See, I was yeah. very, very impressed with this work. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg. And David Bietney, we're proud to be spending our evening with Frank Warren, UFO investigator. And we're talking now about the O'Hare incident, but we're going to get into some other stuff later on the show that you'll also be as interested in. Here's the problem with the way the O'Hare situation was handled, I think. Because in looking back on it, Peter has done some really fantastic work in the field and is a very valuable resource. Peter, in my dealings with him on the phone, has some personal communications issues. And, um, uh, you know, we've had him on the show. He, he was a fantastic guest. But I've tried to speak to him after the fact over uh, on the telephone about some other sightings and some other situations. And uh, my experience is that the guy turns on a dime. He goes from being reasonable and friendly to just borderline abusive. And I have to believe that if he deals that way with the media in general, and the feedback that I've gotten is that that's indeed what he does, he ends up driving the media away from the stories. And that's that's sad. That's really sad because ultimately, in the case of the O'Hare episode, there were a lot of us who thought that things were almost released too quickly without verification. And this is sort of the problem, Frank, of ufology. It almost seems like the most visible um, proponents of this field end up becoming the field's worst enemies. It's, it's rather frustrating, I think. Would you characterize that in, in your personal experience with Peter? Would you think that that would be out of frustration? Or is that, or is that just a character flaw? Well, I don't know. And, and I can understand that someone gets frustrated with a, a media that pretty much is not interested in this outside of the ridiculous factor. But I, I sometimes wonder how the media got that way. And I think, well, maybe it's because of having one too many experiences where the personality traits come out. And look, the listeners of the show know that, you know, and I'll speak for myself here again. I mean, I get very passionate about this topic. I'm very opinionated. And there are times when I say things that are a little outrageous. At the same time, I think that this topic is really important. And I mean, in many ways, it's one of the greatest mysteries of our times. Why shouldn't we be interested in understanding this? But ultimately, what seems to happen is that, and this is something that I've, over the last year and a half, really come to understand, 
a lot of the people who are involved at this at the highest levels have just completely out of control egos. And and this is like their one bit of visibility they've ever had in their lives. And they get so involved in the personality and ego game, they forget the mission. And the mission is to try to get to some understanding of this. And I think that's unfortunate. Ultimately, if we look at what UFOs are about, I think that what we're going to find out one day is that we are so intricately involved in what these things are that maybe some good percentage of cases can be directly related to our psyches. And I think people like Jacques Fallet were really on the right track in looking into what the real sourcing of the majority of the truly unexplained UFO cases are about. I think that what ends up happening is that we get derailed on things like, well, you know, are they, what planet are these things from? Are they time travelers? Are they inter interdimensional beings? I think that if we look at, for example, the many cases of contactees that we have, that it's probably not unreasonable to say that whatever these creatures are, they are giving us disinformation, essentially, about what they really are so that we have a belief system that's come up around this that puts them out as these are extraterrestrials. And we've had this discussion with Stanton Friedman where we've tried to, to broach the topic with him of, okay, let's talk about some alternate theories of the sourcing of these things. And the minute you say that, Stanton takes his position of these are extraterrestrial craft from another planet. And that's it. He's not even open to discussing anything else. And it's understandable. He's spent a lot of time and a lot of research coming to that conclusion. But the reality of it is that at least in terms of looking at all of the research work, I don't think there's any hard evidence to prove that. I think there's, you can make the case that these creatures want us to believe that, and they've convinced us of that. I, I think, well, going back to Valet for a minute, mm -hmm. first, uh, he has widened his parameters, and I find it fascinating as many decades that he's been involved with ufology that he has come to certain conclusions, or at least he's more broad-minded. Stan, yes, is more focused, and it's based on his own research, And which, by the way, uh, he's a dear friend of mine, and we often work in concert together on various things and witnesses, etc. In fact, he's one of my heroes. Uh, we don't always agree on everything. In part, and, and actually touching on what you said, the, uh, he, he gets into the, uh, the, the cosmic conspiracy and so forth and so on. From my point of view, and I wrote an article not, not too long ago, uh, Human Explication and Alien Intent, we tend to view, uh, first off, if we're talking, if we're talking about carbon-based entity uh, and or extraterrestrials or aliens, if we can in fact even say that, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, we view their motives based on human explication. Well, I don't think we can do that. I mean, are these people, first off, you know, are they carbon-based? Are they tribal? You know, what is their modus operandi in terms of their society? Are they societal? So I, I don't think that we can make that if we're looking at everything objectively from, from a scientific position. We can speculate and say, look, from a human position, if they're like us, well, maybe it would be like this, but we can't say that until there's some proof on the table. Sure. So I take a little bit wider stance uh, in, in terms of that. And 
And science is our friend in uh, in that regard also. Uh, you know, the, the very first step in, in, uh, in scientific methodology is the observance of the phenomena. And it, it always, it's almost laughable when, when mainstream science tends to shy away from these things because in my mind they, they approach it from a biased position and, you, and that's that goes against science in general uh, if there's an observation of a phenomenon then it's it's uh, our duty or in terms of from a scientific approach uh, to broach the subject let's look into that what is that so anybody that comes into that into the melee uh, and it, it makes me think of Michael Shermer for some reason uh, if they come in with this biased position you just can't do that nor do I think you can do it from a human perspective you know, let's say in fact these are extraterrestrials let's say they are from another planet uh, you know, are they societal? We, we're, we're, we're coming from a human perspective, and there's no evidence to dictate that we can do that. So you well, have to take more of a, a valet perspective and, and be open to, uh, to bigger things. In all sorts mind. of possibilities, absolutely. Well, in terms of the human, per, the human perspective and what we know, for example, about life on this planet, stop anybody in the street and ask them, what's the most successful species on this planet? Typical human being is going to say, "Well, human beings, of course." And of course, one has to ask, "Well, how do you gauge dolphins?" But <laughs> well, no, actually, um, in terms of, for example, successful in what way? Well, let's say biomass. Which species on the planet has the greatest number of members of that species? Who's got the numbers? Well, it's certainly not human beings. In fact, the most in, in, based on that metric, the most successful species on the planet are ants. Ants... I thought you were going to say cockroaches. But I was well, no, actually, no. The, 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 the actual reality are ants. Ants, outweigh, if, if we take the, the, the biomass, the weight of the species, the ants outweigh us two to one. Basically, you take all the humans on Earth, put them on a scale, take all the ants on Earth, put them on, another, on the other side of the scale, uh, the ants outweigh us two to one. Now, if we look at the organization of an ant colony, if we look at the incredible efficiency and the deployment of technology, technology defined as a being using its environmental surroundings as a tool to control those environmental surroundings, then ants are perhaps the most efficient life form on the planet. If we, if we look at all of this, one can probably come to a fairly safe assumption that the hive structure of an ant colony is probably more geared towards potential long-term success and evolutionary success than the individual-oriented humans that are on the planet. Even though humans tend to congregate in terms of groups and belief systems and so forth, we are, for the most part, relatively individualistic beings. Ants, on the other hand, are not. Ants are part of a collective. I'm willing to bet that if we look at what we know about these beings that have been reported, it does appear that their species, whatever it is, is most likely, and I'm not saying this in a definitive way, but just in terms of what we've seen, most likely that society, that species, is organized in terms of a collective, a hive collective. And that makes sense because when we look at technology and technological evolution, clearly humans intellectually and spiritually have not been able to keep up the pace of their spiritual and intellectual evolution 
with the evolution of our technology. And this is now the biggest crisis we face as a species. And very well, maybe the end of this species in the next 100 or 200 years. There's a good possibility we're about to essentially come to our evolutionary conclusion. And I hope not. I hope that's not true. But it's starting to look that way by many different ways of measuring things. Which evokes the question. It, it mm-hmm. makes me think of uh, Reagan's speech. If if we were one, if it was common knowledge that uh, we're not alone, that we are all earthlings, would that change things? And how would that change things? We have would that we knowledge. Night at that. We, point? No, would of we, course not. No, we already know. Look, the most important image that came out of the 20th century was the picture of Earth as a globe hanging in space by itself against a black backdrop. That was that was the image that basically defined the 20th century for my money. Now, there was that image. We all got to see it. We all know what image I'm talking about. The Earth is one. We are all one. Has it meant anything? Has it changed anything? I mean, one could make the argument that for certain individuals, there has been a revelation. But our species as a whole... I would contend that we're no more evolved in that sense than we were 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's but, sad. I'm not happy about that. <laughs> neither am I. But we as a collective, in the sense that uh, if it was common knowledge, let's say the media came out tomorrow and right. said, listen, we've got a story for you. And, and it was made to be it was made to be known around the world and 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 given a length of time let's say that a year has gone by that we are not alone that there that we have been in contact with other intelligent species etc that life is abundant in the universe and we're just a small piece of it we are one with many others i would think and i would hope that would bring us close, closer together, opposed to just saying, uh, yes, th- that's us all on, on this one planet, but if we're all by ourselves, what difference does it make? We're, we're still this warring tribal, separate tribes, etc. Unfortunately, uh, I, Frank, what might happen is that we will try different countries to get one up with the aliens. Of course, that's what really would happen is we'd like to say, well, the aliens prefer the Americans. No, they prefer the Russians or the Chinese. And that's unfortunately how it may play out. Yes, I, I'm afraid you're probably right. Yeah, we, we need an ant mentality that this thing work. <laughs> Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting too for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? 
Its reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. UFO investigator Frank Warren joins us for talking of shop, but also we're going to a little bit later talk about his viewpoint with regard to that, do you call it deathbed confession affidavit from Walter Hott about whether he saw aliens in connection with Roswell. Well, whether he saw a dead body, but we're back to what tells us these are aliens. Now, I want to throw something on the table here, because whenever I have a long weekend with my lovely girlfriend, we have discussions that end up being reflected on show topics. And we were talking about the greys this weekend. Specifically, we were talking about their eyes. Now, if you look at these large almond-shaped eyes that are almost completely black, that sort of indicates you're talking, again, based on what we know about the physiology of an eye, that would indicate that that eye is meant to capture a lot of light, A, or B, capture light in a very low light situation. If we think about the construction of what an eye is, and if we think about here, you've got this large eye area. And from a human perspective. From, from a human perspective. Right now, that's kind of the only perspective we really have to deal with, and, and that is clearly a limitation and a problem. But well, let me, let me interject. There's been yeah, many cases right. where the aliens, the greys, uh, have been described uh, in uniform, mm-hmm. opposed to their skin. Uh, and also there, there have been cases uh, where it, it has appeared that they've had something over their head. So are those, in fact, eyes, or, or are they some for, sort of goggle or glass? over the eyes. Uh, again, you, there, there are many descriptions, many accounts, you know, to, to try to formulate some type of an opinion on. But for argument's sake, let's say that that's an eye. And, and from a human perspective, go ahead. Well, I mean, these creatures have bilateral symmetry. They have two eyes. They have two arms. They have two legs. We know something about the evolution of species. We know something about the idea that evolution serves a purpose, it's not just random, that if we have these beings that have reached this state, and assuming, by the way, they're not genetically engineered beings, and I think that's a not necessarily a safe assumption. There's a good chance that we're talking about beings that are to some extent manufactured. Why would they be in that specific configuration? Why would they have bilateral symmetry. I mean, what again, trying to understand this from a human perspective, we know something about why creatures end up like this. I mean, that kind of makes the assumption that these creatures evolved, not necessarily in the same way that we evolved or at the same rate, but certainly if there's one thing we seem to know about nature in general is that 
the form of species and the form that the specific configuration of life forms is is meant to serve a specific purpose that things don't just happen randomly that a species will adapt to its environment and will conform its physiological makeup to being what is necessary to survive in that environment that being the case if you look at a creature that has two large black eyes well the whole purpose of having two eyes is simply essentially to establish stereo vision is to be able to see depth and to be able to perceive perspective now that tells us something about these creatures and that maybe they're not so different than we are and the whole thing about the eyes and the idea that these eyes are designed to let in large amounts of light would sort of indicate that these creatures exist in a relatively low light environment. And, and I have yet to see any, any research, any real research, that tries to approach this problem of understanding the sourcing of these things based on what we can actually look at and know. Because I'll tell you this, when we hear the stories from contactees who claim that they've been told certain things by these creatures, I don't think there's any reason to believe anything that any of these creatures have has ever uttered. If I were them, the last thing I'd want to tell a human being is the truth of my existence, of where I come from. It's kind of like the idea that humans are going to tell monkeys in a lab about the human condition. What makes anyone think the monkey could ever even understand it? Certainly. Well, it, if you accept alien abduction, and if you just if you stick with nuts and bolts craft, and if you stick with eyewitnesses or, or anecdotal evidence in terms of smaller beings, etc. And again, this is taking a wide scope on this thing. Right. Um, for example, we we've got military men now. We send into combat. Uh, we've got them set up for video. If you were to drop one of these guys in the Amazon in the jungle and and they were tribal members were to discuss this alien being to them sure did you see the eyes on the on this mm-hmm. oh my god what was that well in, in that particular instance he's set up for video which is going back to command uh could it be that these almond shaped eyes are biomechanical type situation uh we i mean you can get into cloning i mean it just, it, it just never ends until uh, we have one of these, and when I say we, I don't mean the powers that be that most certainly know more than we do. We can speculate on this from a from a human perspective, and that's all we can. That's what we can go by. I I, I think you have to take a wider view on it un, until there's evidence we can lay down on the table. Absolutely. Um, We've got motherships. We've got smaller ships. Are, are, are people uh, engineered to to take long flights in space? If in fact is is that how they go, or do they open a wormhole and they're here instantaneously? I mean, it, it could go on and on. You understand what I mean? Absolutely. Um, are they in fact are the little guys the main populace? Are are they just strictly engineered for exploration? Are they are are they the little uh, soldiers that go out? You know that are bioengineered uh, that can do these things. I, I mean, you know, it's mind-boggling, uh, particularly if you don't limit yourself uh, to, to human explication. You you can I mean, we're looking from our perspective. What would we do in that instance? Uh, 
and it, it's really hard to that's all we can do but sure sure but I, I think it's back to valet he's he's taken a much wider perspective he gets into other dimensions et cetera et cetera some people tend to laugh at that but I try to stay open-minded about anything and and also try to go where the evidence leads regardless or of, of any piece of ufology as far as that goes and you know and you and then you get bias within ufology which is funny i mean even pro ufologist and i'm from the standpoint that uh, a certain small percentage of ufo's are extraterrestrial i believe that i believe it based on my own research uh and when i say extraterrestrial that doesn't mean that they came here in a spacecraft uh, that they flew thousands of light years. Perhaps there's other, some other means of travel that we're not hip to yet. Uh, I mean, look what we've done ourselves from our own bell curve in the last hundred years. I, I mean, it's mind-boggling. If, if you think of, uh, if we do want to get into a species uh, and then take a thousand years of advancement, assuming that uh, technology advances the same way. Uh, that it does on this planet, and again, we're coming from a human perspective. I mean, my God, what what could be possible? I mean, just look what we've done. In fact, what, one of the uh, prerequisites for life, uh, what our famous scientists told us up until not too long ago, one of the prerequisites was light, and now we've taken that out of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've now found extremophiles on the bottom of the ocean, uh, mm -hmm. miles underneath the ice. In fact, just recently, uh, we've... Uh, uh, unearthed uh, microbes from uh, the, what they're saying is 800,000 years old that mm -hmm. that that we're bringing back to life. I mean that takes the that takes the Drake equation and and completely <laughs> alters it. Absolutely. Uh, I mean the the possibilities for carbon-based life at, at this point when you take light as one of the factors out of the equation it's phenomenal, and personally, I believe uh, here shortly they're going to tell us that there's microbial life on Mars, and I think they're going to tell us that there's microbial life. They're going to admit it finally that there's microbial life on Titan, just just based on what's going on here uh, on this planet. It, it's mind-boggling when when you start to think. I, I think we're going to come to realize that life is are, are like seeds from a tree blowing in the wind. Well, there, there's no reason not not to be assured of that at this point you know we look at and i've said it on the show here before and i'll say it again we look at the diversity of life on this planet and uh, i think it's pretty obvious that that is reflective of the diversity of life throughout the universe we know that even the existence of water has been well established throughout the observable universe we know there's water out there obviously there's a ton of carbon out there there's plenty of hydrogen there's plenty of helium that's you know hydrogen and helium playing with each other is how our star works um and in reality from a technological point of view we are ants in that sense uh, technology wise we are about as unsophisticated as a civilization can get my god we are burning dinosaur goo as fuel uh, this is i mean it is the, uh, what is dinosaur goo well basically the accumulation of the photonic interaction with uh, with carbon based life over two very small tiny little chunks of time where the oil was formed so here we are and what 150 years into our great technological revolution we're already now past the halfway point of using up all of that very high density fuel that we've used to basically push this entire 
species forward, and in the next hundred years, that's going to come to an end. And it's real simple. And sadly, when we have the wisdom and also the technology that's far superior to that and does not harm us, yet we still like to use the dinosaur goo. Well, you know, humans are... are makes those are, ants look real good. Again. Well, it does make them look really good. And, and the bottom line is this. The only way off this planet, the only way, and the only way any species gets off this planet is by the utilization of its highly efficient localized fusion reactor, a.k.a. its star. As far as humans go, we don't make any real use of the energy of our star, all of the energy we're ever going to need to expand in a way that is sustainable in order to uh, populate other planets or in, other to, in order to get to other star systems. This, our star is the answer to all of that. And at this point, we don't make any real use of that at all. We only make use of it in as much as we're dragging stuff out of the ground that is, again, basically photonic energy combined with carbon reactions that has been stored in the ground. And while we're sucking all that oil out, what's always occurred to me, and I think I might have mentioned on the show before, is that here we are pulling all this oil out of the ground and I think to myself, you know, did the planet put the oil there so that we could move ourselves forward over a 200-year time span? Or, gee, maybe that oil is actually involved in the uh, tectonic plate system as a, I don't know, lubricant. And maybe we don't even realize this, and what we're doing is essentially screwing ourselves. <laughs> Not that humans have ever done that before. But, you know, <laughs> oh, it's boy. like we do these things, and we don't even give consideration to the ramifications of our actions. We're, and so we're taking we talk, the grease from the bearing, that's for sure. Well, I, only, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a geologist, certainly, but I, you're pulling all this oil out of the earth, and you're pumping water down so you can push more oil out. I think to myself, well, you know, Look at our rocket technology. Yes, we've gotten to the moon. An amazing achievement, although there are people out there that say, we didn't get to the moon, it's just all retouched photographs. Yeah, whatever. We got to the moon. But ultimately, in terms of our species, how, what did that accomplishment really do for us? It was really done as a way to sort of satisfy our egos. Was it done in order to really move the species forward? You know, that, that's a, I guess that's a debatable point. But when it comes right down to it, it's almost like everything that we do is done out of certain types of distorted self-interest, and we haven't pulled together as a species yet. And if I were another life form looking in at the little humans doing their little games, I'd come to those conclusions just certainly by consuming our media, by looking at the you know the radio waves and the TV signals we've been sending out for what a little over around a hundred years now, um, just basically looking at, actually much less than a hundred years, looking at that you know if you if you looked at twenty four hours of television programming, your opinion of the human species might not be real high. Well, well they can always watch I Love Lucy reruns. Yeah, the, the, the inmates are running the uh, insane asylum. <laughs> That's what they would come up with. Well, maybe they want to communicate with the ants. In fact, I was thinking as you guys were talking, and we're almost finished with the first part of the show, but I was thinking about this, guys, and that is, what if we realize that we can't get ourselves together and the ants have survived here for millennium, and we say, for millennia, the ants have survived here. 
Let's communicate with the ants and find out how they do it, you know, how they get together, how they survive, because we haven't a clue, ladies and gentlemen. And maybe this seems funny to you, okay? But you have to look at the situation. Maybe this is one of the things about the UFO phenomenon that's so interesting, because in a previous show, Alan Greenfield and I were discussing this question of flying saucers being here to make us think. Think about what? Think about the crazy condition of our planet, perhaps, that we have to get things together and get them resolved for otherwise we won't have much of a planet left or at least a planet that will support us now if the beings come from zeta reticuli why would they care or any other planet way beyond <laughs> our local solar system they wouldn't care what happens to us would they or unless they seeded us or but if they're really closely related to us in some way maybe travelers from the future parallel universe whatever maybe they would care on the paracast we're talking to frank warren ufo investigator and one of the things that of course got us involved in this discussion and bringing frank aboard was the fact that he wrote us a very informative letter that david read part of at the beginning of the show related to this document this affidavit purportedly from the late walter hot regarding roswell and what he saw or didn't see coming up on the second part of the powercast to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. On the second half of the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, UFO investigator Frank Warren joins us. Frank, a couple of weeks back, you wrote a letter to David and myself with regard to this, I guess we call it the deathbed confession of Walter Hunt and your impressions of it. And maybe rather than reading more of the letter than David did earlier in the show, Frank, maybe you can give us kind of the background of your conclusions and where we can take them. Sure. Actually, what precipitated my email to you guys uh, is literally you—you you both broke the uh, broke the story in terms of how the uh, affidavit came to be. And I was listening to the interview with Dennis Balthaser, and you didn't bring it up, nor did he. And I thought, wow. Well, when you had Schmidt and Carry on, Schmidt uh, explained you—you you elicited the information from him, and he point blank explained how the affidavit uh, came into existence. But let me back up a little bit. As you know, Wendy Connors and, and Dennis Balthaser uh, interviewed Walter in 2000, and they did it. Uh, they did a videotape interview. That in that interview, uh, Walter does in fact state that he did see bodies and wreckage. He also says he didn't see anything on, on a number of occasions, and, and I'll explain that. But. I was one of the few that was viewed the video uh, because Dennis and I worked closely together. And after Walter's passing, which was the agreement, the videotape was uh, was held in, until he passed away. Uh, and as Wendy stated in the introduction to the video with Walter, that uh, it would be shared with various researchers and so forth and so on. I was lucky enough to be one of them. When I received the video, basically what I thought I was going to see, and for lack of a better term, it would be the smoking gun that uh, that Walter was admitting seeing bodies and wreckage and so forth and so on. 
Quite to the contrary, when I first sat down and watched it, I, I, my impression was just the opposite. Uh, he was more in denial of seeing anything. In fact, I counted four times where he said he didn't see anything at all, that he just wrote the press release or words to that effect. Now, he did. Now, now Wendy kept after him, and, and I don't mean this in any negative light. You know, Walter had told Wendy things in private. Both Dennis and Wendy heard, overheard uh, Walter state that he had seen bodies when, when that French film crew was in town and inter interviewed him, which actually precipitated the, uh, the video interview. And she was after him to, to uh, repeat that on, on tape. So I understand her motives. However, for the most part, throughout the uh, video interview, uh, he was more towards the negative than the positive. He did, in fact, though, almost reluctantly admit to, to seeing certain things. However, in the context of the entire video, in my mind, he seemed very confused. He was often forgetful. He, uh, he was asked where he did his basic training. He couldn't remember that. He was asked where he was stationed after the war. He couldn't remember that. He had trouble remembering certain words. If I count the times he said I can't remember, I, I mean, it was literally dozens and dozens of times. He was often confused. In fact, my wife and I watched the, uh, the tape together, and it, it reminded us of somebody with the onset of some uh, form of dementia and or Alzheimer's. Having no, in a, from my unprofessional opinion, although we do know people that have Alzheimer's and or some form of dementia, and it seemed to me that that it was plausible that he, that that might be the initial stages uh, of that. When the affidavit, when the book came out, and uh, during the 60th anniversary, and then the affidavit, of course, became public, I was adamant. Uh, you know, the uh, the affidavit was so. Uh, precise dates and times and minutes and, and, and so forth and, and so on, I thought, my God, unless a miracle happened, there's no way in the world Walter Hutt wrote that. He, uh, there's just, it just couldn't be. Now, the man that I saw two years previously, he, he just couldn't, couldn't have done it. And I, I published that on one of our forums, and I also mentioned the fact that, uh, uh, that I thought that he may be experiencing the onset of dementia, etc., Caught a lot of flack for that. Also mentioned his appearance on the uh, on the Larry King show in 2003, where he had to be pulled, and he seemed very confused then. And I watched that live when when he was on there, and so that kind of just reconfirmed what what I saw three years earlier on on the videotape. This went around a little bit. A lot of a lot of people uh, gave me flack for that, and, and uh, but one of the things that uh, that was agreed upon was that regardless of the cause, the causality, uh, he in fact was forgetful. He did uh, have a lot of problems remembering things. So for whatever reason, I mean, if we just put it to old age and and the ravages of time, uh, we everybody that had viewed the tape were in agreement with that. Um, consequently, as, as time went by, uh, you know, this went went around the uh, the halls of ufology, so to speak. And I and I thought it was important. I, I was curious as to to know how the affidavit uh, was put together. Well, on the I think it was the 22nd uh, when you interviewed uh, Schmidt and Kerry, you pulled the information from him. Schmidt verbatim said it was three years before Walter died. 
and he actually trickled information to us on and off through the years. But he was quite clear that he was very sensitive to not only uh, to not only uh, his security oath, but as though he was honoring someone else's request to him. And it was quite clear, as we demonstrated in the book, that he was honoring the old man or uh, what he called Colonel Blanchard. That is, Blanchard asked him not to say another word about this, and he was doing just that. So we had come up with a venue, a manner by which uh, he could present the information and tell us what had happened to the best of his ability without betraying that trust, that bond that he had with Blanchard. And it was suggested to us by an attorney that a sealed statement, emphasis added on my part, might provide that opportunity, and that's what we've done. It was prepared. It was based on things Walter told us in confidence for a number of years. So what I initially thought, that I mean, I questioned the idea. I thought, my God, this, how could he have been so precise in the affidavit? Well, it turns out Schmidt wrote the, the affidavit and not Walter. Uh, and, I, and, and I will have to point out that Walter signed it in front of witnesses, so legally uh, it's as good as if he wrote it himself. But what we have to ask is, why didn't he write it himself? And if he couldn't write it himself, why not videotape the questions as was done in 2000? About a month later, because this went round and round, Schmidt again reiterated what he said on your show. Uh, and he went into more detail. He says, as you may or may not know, I don't believe anyone spent more time and effort attempting to get Walter to provide more information than we publicly did. Mm -hmm. Each and every trip to Roswell and all the personal phone conversations slowly but surely trickled what eventually would become the final affidavit. Uh, he goes on to say that we even try, we tried to hypnotize him. Uh, we next we tried a sworn statement in the presence of a government official of Chavez County. Uh, in other words, it, it, what I'm getting out of that uh, to ad lib is that it was like pulling teeth getting information from Walter. When Walter was videotaped on his historic record by Wendy Connors and Dennis Balfazer, he never was told in advance uh, that they would ever touch on the subject of Roswell. And to that, I say that. To, <laughs> To be polite, that's just point-blank wrong. The very first ten minutes of the videotape explained to Walter uh, what is uh, going to go on in the video. Uh, and, th and they take it a step further, by the way. Not only were they going to talk about ufology, they were going to talk about the man. And, uh, and you got to give kudos to Wendy and Dennis both because they, they went way beyond ufology. Uh, Walter led a very interesting life. And one thing that we all agree on, he was a man of integrity, he was a decent individual, he was an honest man, and he was a patriot. Uh, and they and they wanted to get into that end of it. They didn't want to just keep it uh, within ufology. But in regards to the Roswell incident, that was explained up front to Walter on videotape. In fact, I just watched it about an hour ago just to get it fresh in my mind. Moreover, and most importantly, an abstract was written and given to Julie prior to the interview. So the family was completely aware of what of what the interview uh, was going to be based on. And in fact, Julie even actually sat in for a few minutes and was asked if she wanted to uh, uh, put any questions in, and I, and I believe that she did offer some question some questions. So uh, uh, Schmidt intimating that uh, that uh, Wendy and Dennis more or less ambushed Walter is just that's just false. That did not take place at all. And it, quite frankly, <laughs> from my perspective, in terms of evidence, I would much rather watch a videotape of a man speaking in his own words than something that was written by somebody else and then signed by that man. I mean, in terms of uh, credibility. Now, a lot of people have come up. A lot of researchers have said, "Well, look, you've got to read. You've got to read between the lines." 
you know, this guy was holding his oath. He, he was from a different uh, generation. The morals were different then. He was kind of holding the party line until the end. And that may be so, and it's probably more palatable to a ufologist than the object, uh, than the uh, average person or the layperson. But from an objective position, uh, even if you take out the, the, the videotape, uh, you know, Walter denied direct involvement in terms of bodies and wreckage all of his life, uh, except towards the end when he did, in fact, say that on the videotape, and then again later with the, with the affidavit that Schmidt prepared. People would take that to task. You take somebody like Michael Shermer, and he would eat that up for lunch. Uh, as a witness, if it, forgetting science for a moment, if that went into court, they'd toss it out because he's, he's completely contradicting himself. Now, the videotape and the affidavit were done under the same auspices. That is to say that the tape, uh, the tape would not be released until his passing, same as the affidavit. Well, he completely contradicts himself on the videotape, in my view. Uh, well, period. That's not my view. He just does. I mean, it, that's a fact. He says four times I, I didn't see bodies or wreckage in, in words to that effect. He also says that he did. Uh, so just on that, if, if you were to take that into evidence, uh, and if it was in a court of law, so to speak, that would be tossed out. Now, personally for me, and, and, and you may get a chuckle out of this, uh, I believe Walter did see uh, bodies and or wreckage, but I don't believe it from anything that's been put on the table uh, in regards to the videotape and or this, the last affidavit. I believe it uh, from what, that he's, what he's told people individually, particularly Wendy Connors. Uh, because I have the utmost respect for her, and I know for a fact uh, what he told uh, Wendy in private. And she has since uh, spoke about it a little bit publicly, and, and she shared information with me privately. And also Dennis Balthaser, who worked with him. Remember, Dennis was a, a volunteer at the museum and saw him every day. So quite frankly, yeah, I, I think he did see something. But to use the videotape or the affidavit as evidence is just, it's weak to me. He's contradictory in the videotape, and somebody else wrote the affidavit. Although he did sign it, and of course it is a legal document, and it's, it's as good as if he wrote it himself, uh, assuming he was in sound mind. Huh. Uh, well, now you raise a big I, I point there. Yeah. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. 
You are the parent guest with Jesus and the David the enemy. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. UFO researcher Frank Warren joins us. The first part of the show in the previous hour, we were talking a lot about the state of UFO research, possible origins and motives. And now we're talking about the controversial affidavit published in that book, Witness to Roswell, that we discussed several times on the Paracast already. And the impression I get from you in what you're saying and very direct is that if Walter Hart was not in sound mind and certainly suffering from early effects of dementia. He could have signed anything without being fully aware of the consequences of what he wrote or well, what he signed. Let me interject and I'll, and I'll be completely clear. I based everything that I've said and or written on the videotape and as well as that segment on uh, Larry King. Uh, it's been brought to my attention and uh, I was told that on the Larry King issue, uh, and, and again, I caught flack for that as well, but I, I watched it live and it was my own observation, but uh, I was told that he had, uh, you know, he was a diabetic and that he had a glucose issue, either high or low, uh, and of course, that exhibits the the, the same symptoms in, in terms of confusion, et cetera, and, and I don't dispute that. that. That's reasonable to me, and I also yield to people that knew the man personally. Wendy Connors completely disagrees with me. She feels that that he didn't uh, have dementia in any, any way whatsoever, other than just normal aging. If, if in fact, that's the case, uh, he, he had big-time memory issues on, on the videotape. And, and a lot of people that took me to task on this haven't seen the tape. So I always, the first thing is, is, look, watch the tape and then give me your opinion. One of the persons that, that did see the tape and, and uh, disagreed with me was Dick Hall, who I have the utmost respect for. Although he did agree, he was confused and he was forgetful. So the end result is, is still the same. And in that regard, you have to question. The other thing that, that Schmidt brings up, and he brought it up on your show, that he had to be monitored by a doctor you know, prior to doing the affidavit, both physically uh, and mentally. And one has to ask why is that? One has to ask, why didn't he just write the uh, the affidavit himself in his own words? I mean, that would solve the problem. One has to ask, why not videotape him reading and writing, at the very least, reading and writing the affidavit? You know, this, this whole thing just evokes more questions. And even if, even if everything in that last affidavit is true and factual, we're left with an anecdote. On the positive side, there are things in that, uh, in the affidavit that he's left us. He's left us some tidbits that we can research, and I, for one, am actively, actively trying to do that. He puts Ramey in Roswell Tuesday morning. This should be, we should be able to, to get information to verify that. Now, it doesn't make sense to me. It, it certainly doesn't make any sense that Ramey would be there Tuesday and then later that afternoon be in Dallas and, and then issue a, 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 the balloon story statement. Why not just nip it in the bud right there at Roswell? Uh, in fact, he nobody need, needed to know he was there. Why not let Blanchard do that? You, you know, again, more questions come up with that. But the affidavit has left left us something to work with. He also puts other uh, uh, people there. 
during that meeting uh, on Tuesday. And ironically, Schmidt mentions a previous affidavit in 91, which mm-hmm. I'm not aware of, and I believe he's talking about another video interview that was done via FUFER uh, in 1990. And ironically, another contradiction was there where uh, Walter says uh, in, the sta- in the next staff meeting, which was about a week later, I believe we held them at that time every Monday. And, of course, in, in the 2002 affidavit, he, he says it was Tuesday. So there's you know another contradiction there. And, of course, that, that was done in 1990, which we would have been much sharper you know, that many years earlier. So it's just at the end of the day, uh, we're, we're left with, with anecdotes. I, I think the, the affidavit itself w- would have much more credence to it if it was penned by Walter himself in his own words. Sure. Uh, much like the one in 93 was done. Uh, I mean, that was retyped, but it was in essence uh, written in his own words. Well, well Frank, let's um, look at some motives here, though, because I think what we need to do, you know, we can get caught up on details of the affidavit and, you know, specific inaccuracies. We can do this all day long, but I think it's more instructive in many ways to look at motive. And when we talked to Schmidt and Kerry, I think I came out and asked them, look, does Hoth's family have any financial reason uh, or financial involvement, for example, in the museum. I, I asked these guys, well, didn't wasn't Haught involved in creating the museum? And they're like, Arr. well, isn't his daughter involved? Not really. And then you come out to find that, well, yeah, his daughter essentially runs the museum. So, you know, there's that that, you know, made me really question Mr. Schmidt's honesty. And, and, you know, one of the things about their appearance on the show is that in doing some due diligence on Don Schmidt, it was pretty clear that he's got some credibility problems. And these are fairly well documented and well known. We didn't take him a task on that. We didn't, we didn't get into that. And, and on the Paracast, we have a bit of a reputation of being the kind of show where we do that sort of thing. We, we didn't do that. But when, you know, we asked about Haught's involvement in the museum and his daughter's involvement, Schmidt was very quick to discount it. Now, obviously, that's not the case. Haught was one of the founders of the museum, and his daughter has a daily involvement in it. Let's take that and also take the fact that on that Larry King show, and this is a, what, what happened was after he came on the show and after I expressed my opinions online, and I think Gene did as well, Schmidt started sending us emails saying, you know, wow, you guys didn't treat me right, blah, blah, blah. And I said, hey, buddy, calm down. We didn't spank you the way you should have been spanked. And he just he kept coming at me. And then finally, I wrote to him and said, hey, you know what? I watched the Larry King show when it aired. And when Julie was asked about whether or not he made her father made statements about seeing a body in the affidavit. She said, "Oh no, he didn't." Now I found that to be really weird. Like, wait a minute, if indeed the affidavit has that statement, and now his daughter's saying, "Oh no, he didn't say that," someone doesn't have their story straight. And so to to come to the conclusion of this, the body or going to the site? Excuse me. The body. She uh, she was asked, I believe, on the show whether or not. He stated that he had seen a body or bodies, and she on the show said, no, he didn't, which is not what the affidavit said. Meanwhile, I think about, so why would Walter Haunt sign that affidavit? What would be his motive? And the only thing I come up with, and that other people have mentioned other places, not certainly a paracast theory, but, gee, if the guy is, like, about to leave this planet, he wants to do right by his family. He wants to take care of his family. By signing that affidavit, he's now creating 
what's going to be a perpetual level of interest in the Roswell case and will keep people coming to that museum. And when I look at this whole situation and look at motive, that's the thing that stands out to me. What's your thoughts about that? If you're looking at everything objectively, I mean, certainly that's going to come up. I've always wondered why. I mean, I'm curious to know if Schmidt has even seen the the initial interview with, with Wendy and Dennis. If he has, I mean, Wendy spends 10 minutes explaining what the interview is going to be about. There's also a six-page abstract in writing that was given to Julie. So, I mean, if he knows that, if he if he knew that, and then goes the other way, then either A, he's lying, or he's awful forgetful. And consequently, then you'd have to wonder about research. Um, the, the other part I thought funny is he condemned Wendy for, uh, quote, leading uh, Walter in the interview, uh, and she did. Uh, that was one of the things. I mean, she pursued him. She wanted him to say what, what he had told her in private, but yet he admits himself that he spent three years. Uh, he makes it sound like it's pulling teeth to try to get information from Walter. You know, when this first came out, the layperson gets the impression that, that Walter made a decision, well, I'm going to just let the world know what really happened. Well, when you dig into this thing, that's not the case at all. Uh, I mean, he didn't even write the affidavit. Uh, Schmidt did, admits drafting the affidavit, and then he, in fact, signed it. Then, of course, then the question comes up, was he, in fact, in sound mind? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they claim he was. They claim that a doctor said he was. My question is, well, why was a doctor involved? Why, what necessitated a doctor being there for, for physical and mental reasons, which is what he says? Himself, I mean, Schmidt says this. You know, again, it just it brings up it brings up more questions. And again, objectively, as a witness, uh, you know, ufologists, in fact, are, are biased. We, it's more palatable uh, for us to say, well, look, he held the party line till the end, then he finally said what happened. But even in that regard, the videotape was done under the same auspices. He 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 contradicted himself right there. So at, at that point, you've got to throw him out the window as a witness, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, now, objectively. I mean, if, if we were sitting around the round table and, and we were talking to, to scientists uh, in, in the evidence game, you're not going to play the hot card. You're going to hide that pit in the middle of the deck somewhere. Uh, I mean, you've got a man that denied that all of his life, and then he, then he did uh, he, he talked to people privately. Uh, he, he shared some things there. In the interview, he, he said he did see something, and then four other times he said he didn't. So to me, you've got to cancel that out. Then in the affidavit, you've got something that it turns out he didn't even write. It was, to quote from Schmidt, it was information, it was prepared right, by information right. trickled yeah. to him in a three-year period, you know, prior to uh, the affidavit, uh, prior to him signing the affidavit. So, yeah, you have to wonder about motives. And then, of course, the, you've got the 60th anniversary of the incident and then the book release at that time. I'm, you know, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to, to have the benefits of the book coming out at the same time, of course. Always curious to this day, Dennis Balfazer doesn't understand uh, Julie's behavior towards him. I mean, he was a uh, he, he worked diligently as a volunteer at the UFO museum for years. There's uh, animosity on her part towards him, and he doesn't get it. I, uh, you know, I, I, it just uh, it's a mystery. You know, I wanted to oh. ask you about that too, and I think David does. But first. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? 
You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting too for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Frank Warren, UFO investigator. We're talking about Roswell again, about the Walter Haunt affidavit. And that is an issue. Why do you think that Dennis Paul Faser was ejected from the museum? You know, Dennis is a, is a dear friend of mine, and I don't know. And quite frankly, he doesn't know. You know, one would have to wonder in, in regards to... If you have an affidavit coming out in a book later on that, that coincides with a, with a 60th anniversary, in, in essence, it has this uh, an affidavit uh, talking about seeing bodies and wreckage and so forth. And then you have a videotape that, in essence, says the same thing, except it's on video. You know, I mean, why didn't they... Uh, you know, of course, Wendy and, and Dennis have the copyright on the video. As uh, you know, they weren't tasked to do this. This was their own idea. Uh, and again, they did it. You know, they did it for the family, uh, with the family in mind. And they and they did it more. The Roswell incident was a component. They did this about the man, and uh, which I thought was a really neat thing to do. I mean, the, Walter Hott had a story to tell, much more than than the Roswell incident itself. Uh, very, very interesting history. And they did that, and they should be commended for that. And quite frankly, I mean, it would have been better. They could have just taken snippets of the video and, and published the part where he talks about seeing bodies and, and wreckage. Uh, they had that two years prior. The museum was given, I believe, ten copies of, uh, of the tape. And well, in my mind, look. video is, is much better than uh, than the written word. You're, you're, you're seeing it coming out of the horse's mouth, you know, uh, I, I just right. don't understand that. No, I don't see, understand the motivation. Yeah, we're, we're going in circles here. Um, and, and this is the problem with the whole Roswell case. We're going in circles at this point. 
this is, I, I, and Frank, I'm wondering what you think about this. At this point, you know, we've said it on the show before, we'll say it again. It, it seems like the Roswell case has now passed into mythology, and that's it. We're never going to really know what happened there outside of some major whistleblower in the military who comes out and says, here's the stuff, here are the bodies. Essentially now, this is all effectively useless. So, I mean, that being the case, and I really believe that's true. I don't think at this point we can we can get to any real understanding. We've got such intense personalities involved. We've got major financial interests in terms of the museum generating a ton of revenue for the for the city of Roswell. We've got, you know, Schmidt and Kerry who've got their book and they're really interested in, you know, selling books. Though, okay, they'll sell 500 books, then what? Um, it's not like this is really a mainstream book. Uh, uh, you know, once we factor all that in, you, you start to think, all right, something probably happened there, but we're never going to know. So that being the case, and given that you're a UFO researcher who looks at a lot more than just Roswell, in the last 10 years, what are the two most compelling cases that come to your mind that potentially offer us some true living leads. Let me go back to, to Roswell just for a moment over right. the last 10 years. First, let me say that one of the mistakes that is made with Roswell and, and the discussion of Roswell is people put blinders on. Roswell was but a, a component, and forgive the analogy, but it was, it was just a flea bite on the ass of ufology at the time. This was just one small event that happened and was tucked away uh, in a myriad of events that were going on in 1947. This is what people forget when they discuss Roswell. Uh, there were sightings of, of airborne, unidentified craft flying in formation all over the country. There was uh, there was a sighting in in, uh, uh, in Palestine, Texas, of, of Roswell-type debris uh, ejected from the craft. There was a report of eight craft landing in Idaho right around the same time. The nine craft were sighted uh, uh, by Arnold. They were sighted again down in, in Washington, sighted again in Oregon, sighted again down in Bakersfield. This was going on all, all over the place. People, when they start debating Roswell and where it's going or where it's not going, forget that this was just a little minute part of what was happening at that particular time. And I might add, opposed to Schmidt and Carey, there's a lot of Roswell research going. Uh, and again, uh, according to them, they're the only two researchers that are doing right. anything, and that's the yeah. furthest thing from the truth. Yeah. Uh, I can I can tell you right now that that uh, Stan and Dennis and I are, are working on it at, at least a half a dozen witnesses, and we keep our work quiet until we get to the end uh, of the story. And again, these people don't want to talk about the, these things. They don't want their name in the lights. They don't want to be mentioned in a book. But Roswell uh, research goes on, uh, and, and more so than the. Uh, it's, in fact, it surprises me at times. Right now, we're working on on, uh, on possibly one of the photographers that was at the crash scene. There's another one uh, uh, that has information about wreckage. You know, Stan and Dennis and I have the same moral fibers in terms of research and how delicate these matters can be. Uh, and in confidentiality, uh, we regard with a capital C. And believe me, there's a lot of things that are going on, and, and Roswell is far from dead. 
Uh, and, and yes, we are racing the undertaker, but things pop up all the time. But more importantly, and going back to it, it's, that's just a sliver of what was going on at that time. If you put the preponderance of evidence all together in regards to, uh, to the reports of that summer, it becomes more palatable that something may have happened. I mean, there were reports in Idaho of a craft going down. Uh, we've got nine. In fact, the report in Idaho was eight. We had nine uh, craft witnessed in Washington, as well as Oregon, as well as uh, Southern California. Then all of a sudden there's one missing. The craft that Rhodes took a picture of in Arizona, when that picture was shown by Brown and Davidson uh, to uh, Chrisman and Dahl, Dahl uh, commented that that was the same craft uh, that he had seen. And, of course, a lot of people have put Mari Island to sleep, but that's one of my pet projects, and I'm on nine witnesses uh, uh, at this point. Uh, that that saw that craft, opposed to the two that they Dahl and Chrisman, uh, that uh, most researchers feel that they just that that was a hoax and they made it up. Uh, well, I've got the name of nine nine witnesses that were underneath the craft when this thing happened, which by the way ejected Roswell type material. They always mention the slag, but they omit the the Roswell type thin aluminum type material uh, that came out of that craft. And by the way, one of the craft was in trouble. And then here we have a craft coming down. Then, that, and not to mention, we go eight months later, then we have a, uh, the, uh, the crash in Aztec, which the research on that is ongoing and mind-boggling. And we've recently uh, uncovered a witness that has indicated that uh, military personnel were sent from Roswell to the Aztec crash, which might explain different uh, crash locations in terms of people's memory uh, in regards to how much knowledge they had. You know, for example, if uh, if somebody was involved on the periphery of a cleanup or something, and it was out in the Four Corners area, and then the Roswell thing comes up 50, later, 50 years later, and the guy says, well, wait a minute, that wasn't Corona, that was up at the Four Corners area, that would explain some things. But this goes on and on for people, you know, we're neck deep in it, and believe me, it's far from dead. But some of us, uh, we, we tend to keep these things to ourselves in order to not corrupt the uh, the research. The minute things go public, uh, and there's a lot of guys out there, and of course with the, the onset of the internet, and you know you can co contact anybody these days. All of a sudden, you get a lot of puppies at the food dish. In, in fact, case in point, <laughs> I won't mention any names. Although, well, I'll just say I won't mention any names. We got a hold of a witness a while back uh, that had gone public about her husband. I emailed Stan and I said, "This this is just somebody re regurgitating an old witness, isn't that right, Stan?" And he says, no, I've never heard of that person. I says, you're kidding. I said, this is a new name? He says, yes. So I got on the bandwagon and got in contact with the witness, a very elderly woman. Her family was very protected, delicate situation, was handling it with kid gloves, started to, uh, uh, to get some communication going on. We had a little rapport going. And I won't mention any names, but a couple other researchers jumped in the middle of the fray, and, and this gal just clammed up, and that was the end of that. She had names. She, uh, this was a very, very important witness. And sadly, people that don't have the same uh, ethics as we do just, just got in and, uh, well, to be blunt, pissed her off, as well as the family. And, mm. and that was the end of that. But, but, but let's get back to the question. You're talking about all these cases where the witnesses are getting on in years. There's a lot of time between them. But 
you know, if, if I'm someone who's listening to the show, I think to myself, well, wait a minute. There have been even crash cases that have happened within the last 10 years. That one that instantly comes to my mind is what happened in 96 in Virginia, Brazil, where supposedly a ship went down and they got live beings. I mean, how can we talk about these cases and do all this research in cases that are 30, 40, 50 years old, but yet something that happened just a little over 10 years ago? is not receiving the, the amount of attention or certainly the amount of research effort that these older cases are, are, are receiving, to me, that's just sort of daffy. I don't get it. Well, I, I think it goes back to the individual case and, and what work is done and by whom. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the Campecho uh, uh, oil well fires, what, two, three years ago, I mean, that got a lot of press. That was exciting. Research was done. That was jumped on quickly, uh, and it was proven to be an anomaly in, in terms of the FLIR uh, equipment uh, and basically reflections of the uh, of the oil well fires. We're talking about this uh, the the Mexican airport footage of what were supposedly the formations of UFOs flying in the clouds that have been promoted over and over, where those were determined to actually be. Not UFOs. Those were yeah, correct. To be, yeah. Okay. Right. Now that was that was a good example of researchers getting together. They got they got behind it. Uh, they analyzed it, and, and they and they made public what what that was. Right. Each case is individual. And, and another problem to answer your question is there there's no collective unit uh, in regards to ufology and, and and obviously it's not a, a product of uh, academia you, you know there, there's nobody that has a phd in ufology sure uh and of course with nowadays there's a lot of armchair ufologists etc you know I, I had a conversation the other day i said wouldn't it be nice to have seti's money uh and and have a collective effort you know to, to be able to do research to put boots on the ground when something like this situation say in brazil happens get field investigators out there immediately or this issue in Africa that happened uh, that that got uh, media attention for about 72 hours. Put boots on the ground. Uh, get scientists out there. Uh, you know, much of the days of, of say NICAP in April, which uh, which was much more organized than uh, back in those days. I mean, even the the numbers in MUFON have dwindled down to nothing. Sadly to say. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's no. It, 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 we're back to the ant analogy again. <laughs> if we could operate like the ants, we could get some things done. But I, I don't think you can give up on Roswell, and and uh, new things come about uh, all the time. You know, well, Mari Island, for example, which is one of my pet cases. I interviewed the last survivor that was on the plane that killed Brown and Davidson, which were the first known counterintelligence corps agents that were tasked to investigate the UFO phenomenon, actually prior to the, the term UFO, the, the flying disc phenomenon. In fact, I'm going to do an article on on that pretty quick. But uh, I talked to that guy, very, very, uh, he was deteriorating in health, wheelchair-bound. But when we, uh, when we talked about the incident and him bailing out of the plane, he was crystal. It, the the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Mm. Uh, I mean, he described literally the last couple minutes of, of Brown and Davidson's life, it, which, by the way, was the first time he ever jumped out of an airplane, um, out of the B-25. But since that time, the uh, the niece of one of the pilots has contacted me, and she shared some information uh, with me that uh, has never been made public about uh, the mother of, of one of the pilots. That was a gift from heaven for me. I, I can't begin to tell you how excited I was. 
but th- these things happen, and one of the one of the reasons they happen, and, and I'll have to pat you two on the back, is because people get out and they and they keep this stirred up, uh, and shows like yourselves help this. Uh, not too long ago, Bruce Maccabee uh, was on uh, the air on another radio broadcast. There are no other radio broadcasts. No, there are. It's not as good as ours. Yeah, and now we're going to get the listener email going, you guys are yourself, well, I'm yourselves. And this is George Norrie from Toast to Toast. Huh? Are you sure, well, it, Frank, they weren't angels? No, I'm sorry. Yeah, it, thank it, God. Pulled sorry. In some, uh, it pulled in some witnesses, and, and we were able to uh, to get together with some of these witnesses, and, and they added to the information. And in this particular instance, it was the Battle of Los Angeles. Hmm. Uh, and we pulled out some uh, eyewitnesses who, who saw, by the way, our, our planes going after this, this UFO. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the you know it's it's never over it's 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 not over till the fat lady sings and and believe me it's like an iceberg there's more going on under the water that uh, hidden from view than there is on the top there are some people you know they they want to get out there and they want to write books and so forth and and nothing against Schmidt and Carey for writing the book and which by the way I have the book I haven't finished it yet I will write a review on it for the most part it seems like it's very well written he he has added that they have well they collectively uh, added new names into the fray they've given us other leads and even with the controversy on the affidavit it's given us something else to work with hmm. uh, and, and something that uh, can be proved or disproved in, in my mind. And those are the positive things out of that. So it, it, it's, it, it's not over. Well, it's definitely not over. So, Look, and, and part of this is that we've got these historical cases, Frank, but there is also ongoing stuff throughout the world. I just got back from Buenos Aires, Argentina recently. And more than a few people down there told me about an area, uh, uh, actually it's a city called Cordoba, which as it turns out is the center of Argentina's technology industry, and it's where their main technology school is located. Um, And there is a mountain outside of Cordoba where there is a huge amount of UFO activity on a regular basis. In Venezuela, where I grew up, there there were stories about a place called La Mariposa, the butterfly where supposedly there's a huge amount of UFO activity. Well, we had Bruce McAbee on our show, which was a, really a high point for me. I've, I've been a huge fan of his work for many years. I brought up to Bruce, we were talking with him about photographic evidence, and I had said to Bruce that one of the most compelling photos I've ever seen of a UFO came out of uh, an area of Venezuela, where there is supposedly a huge amount of activity. And as it turned out, that photo originally came from a book that, and I didn't even realize this at the time, it came out on the show that that photo that I had seen, which was uh, supposedly taken in the Canaima region of Venezuela, a very important area of that country, uh, it turns out that photo came out of the book that Bruce wrote with Ed Walters, UFOs Are Real. Hmm. And Bruce said to me, oh, I, there's a color version of that photo on the book. I'm like, what? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know about that photo. So you've got this activity going on, for example, in South America, and it goes on all the time. In the 90s, the incredible flap over Mexico City, which is extremely well documented. And I know that Jaime Moussan has, in certain circles, a lot of fans. In other circles, he has apparently credibility issues. We've actually invited him on the show more than a few times. He's never responded. But soon I'm going to be able to track him down and confront him personally and get him on our damn show, if it's the last thing I do. Uh, we, um, don't want to, we don't want to push it that far, but let's do a cliffhanger and well, explain that. Well, but the point is that um, there's all this activity that's gone on 
in recent years. And what I'd love to see, and I'm going to put this out on the show right now. Gee, Paul Allen, if you're listening to the show, which I doubt because you're probably off on your boat playing your guitars or something. But if you're listening to the show, it'd be great. I would love to put together an, a cross-cultural crew, a scientific crew, to go to South America right now with real camera gear, with real instrumentation, with some real time and money to be able to go and f- track down people events, photographs. I'm dying to go back to Venezuela and find the front page of the paper from July 1974 where you've got the full report of the thing that I saw in Caracas, Venezuela with a few thousand other people of a cigar ship hanging in the sky with the hatch opening underneath, the discs coming out, surrounding the cigar ship and vanishing. That episode, which I was a personal witness to, my brother, myself, my parents, and thousands of other people, that episode exists nowhere in any database of UFO activity, period. I was there for that one. It makes me think how many other episodes like that have occurred where because of language restrictions, because of uh, the media's lack of attention to these things, these episodes have been completely forgotten or never reported to begin with. I I don't think it has anything to do with language. I I often ask people, with with the 2002 October New Jersey Turnpike, everybody on the Turnpike pulls off the road looking up at, at a group of UFOs. I mean, it literally, it, of course, you know, I'm in the Sacramento area, so I always equate it to the freeways around here so it gets straight in people's minds. But imagine everybody on the New Jersey Turnpike, say 50, 60 miles, everybody stopping, pulling off the road and looking up and saying, my God, what is that? Which, by the way, I mean, we're talking just months after 9-11. Sure. Uh, and I asked people, did you hear about that? Well, no, no, I didn't hear about it. I said, don't you I think you should that. have? Don't you think that would have been on CNN, ABC, CBS? I mean, something unknown in our airspace post-9-11? Don't you think you would have heard about that? No, never heard about that. What about the uh, F-16 that was dispatched uh, by NORAD uh, right around the time, uh, same time frame over New York? Chased a UFO. The UFO gets away. It's filmed by a local Fox affiliate. I said, don't you think you would have heard about that? Or have you heard about that? No, never did hear about that. I said, don't you think in a post-9-11 world, something unidentified over New York City would make the news? Well, certainly it would. Did you hear about it? No, I didn't hear about that. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. 
She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Rey and Xanther. That's Attack, Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books, or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand science fiction tradition. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. Frank, let me just tell our listeners, you're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney talking to UFO researcher Frank Warren about the state of the UFO field, possible origin sources, reasons why, and Roswell. Of course, there was that line in that John Lennon song, you know, about UFOs being over in New York City and no one seems mm-hmm. to care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a question about that episode. Is that footage floating around the web, Frank? Really? That footage that you said the Fox affiliate had of this F-16 following... I it is, yeah. Yeah, in fact, it may it might even be on my website. Yeah, the uh, I I did watch it, uh, and yeah, it's out there. It's got to be out there. All right, because that's this is actually I heard you mention that episode on another radio show that I happen mm-hmm. to like, and um, I actually couldn't find it. So I was just wondering if it's floating around there because I'd love I'll to take a look it at it and send it to you. And this 1974 Venezuela event, what city was that in again? Caracas. It was in Caracas, Venezuela. Actually, the the fifth episode of the Paracast is devoted to my brother and I talking about that experience in detail. Um, What month? July. July of 74. Yeah. And we're uh, we're actually doing some research on a uh, a Mexican event as we speak. A a witness has popped up uh, with some uh, Mexican military. Mm-hmm. Um, that was involved in some things in the 50s, but uh, and, and which, by the way, we support uh, Inexplicata via Scott Corrales. So any anything uh, anything that he brings to our attention, we publish at the website, the Knowledge is Power website. Scott Corrales is somebody I do like to have on the show. By the way, I'll pass that on to him. I, sure. I was corresponding with him this morning, as a matter of fact. And of course, we also are big fans of A.J. Gavard's work on a UFO, his Brazilian UFO magazine, which he says they're about to come out with an English language. Edition, finally, yeah. which I'm really thrilled about. He, he's just another great resource, and uh, and for my money, one of the most important people involved in doing this kind of research down in South America. And I agree. Yeah, this is like such a, a frustrating thing to me because, I, as someone who grew up overseas, I've really always been so aware of the fact that it's a big world out there. And in the United States, we tend to be so sort of concentrated and centered on episodes that have happened here like what I described to you a moment ago about this cigar ship episode that happened in in 1974 in in Venezuela. In my doing research of other cigar ship sightings, I've never actually come across the specifics of what we saw, which is literally 
the three craft, three tiny little discs, which at that point made it pretty clear how big this thing was in the sky. It was absolutely enormous, much bigger than anything I've ever seen in the sky ever. These three discs came out from underneath of it, positioned themselves in a triangulation, and the whole thing vanished. I mean, I've never heard of a description of that, a comparable description, in any other report of a cigar ship. So, I mean, you know, again, that sort of underscores the idea that there are a lot of sightings that we have never heard of. And so there's got to be some way to create a clearinghouse for this. You know, that's one of the reasons I brought up the, uh, uh, well, in fact, you mentioned the all the Mexico sightings over Mexico City. Did we hear that here in this country? No. I mean, Millions of people witness uh, these objects, and to me, that that's worldwide news. But yet, mm-hmm. they they hit the choking points, and and we didn't get that. So this goes on often. And when something finally does trickle through the mainstream media, or what I call the CCMM, the corporate controlled mainstream media, uh, then, <laughs> well, then can we just like, patent that? I, I like that. I love that. I mean, if you think about it, there's a half a dozen corporations that control everything we read, say, see, uh, hear, you know, etc. Etc. Uh, I mean, it goes back to the Office of Censorship during the Second World War. In fact, a, a good read is uh, the Missing Times. Uh, you know, there were 10,000 civilian employees that were involved in, in censorship during the wartime. Well, when they closed the Office of Censorship in 1945, they didn't send those people home. They were already home. They were at their jobs controlling the media. So consequently, the only thing that was stopped, in essence, and of course conspiracy theorists will have a field day with this, the, the entity, the group, the power that did this remained in place. Uh, the office of censorship was closed, the war was over, but the uh, the employees, the, the ones uh, that uh, had control of this, remained in their positions. Mm-hmm. You know, they were in place. And and I think a few people have, have written over the years. Woodward, I believe, was one that, that wrote about that and, and also various CIA placements, uh, mainstream media places. But And then, of course, the, the, the half a dozen corporations that, that, that control everything we read, see, or hear, they go back decades, and uh, and they were all involved in, uh, they were entrenched with the, in bed with the military back in, during the Second World War. And, and again, you can read a lot into that. But uh, uh, I've always said that the, 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 the most powerful thing on the planet is the media, and the most powerful people are the ones that hold the reins to the media. And there are some really great resources to learn about that actually a documentary that I think very highly of, and this dovetails with the discussion going on on the Paracast forums right now. There is a documentary about the work of Noam Chomsky called Manufacturing Consent. It's a really excellent piece of journalism, and it's about more than just Chomsky. It's really about what has happened to the human condition, and certainly um, it describes in detail how the media have essentially been co-opted. And and that leads us down a whole other dark very dark series of theories, and, and we'll have to save that for another show, but makes one wonder about who really is controlling the media and for what purposes. And that takes us down a, a sort of a path of theories and conclusions that I think most people just cannot or would not be able to deal with. It's just too dark. It's like I've said uh, on the forums about you know, the reality behind 9-11, if we ever really find out as a society what really happened that day, it, our, the American psyche will just implode. I don't think it can actually sustain that. And I think that in many ways, if we look at the incredible government secrecy around 
UFOs. One can almost come to the conclusion that there's a reason this stuff has been held back from us. Maybe as a society, we couldn't handle the reality of this. Maybe the powers that be have actually <laughs> figured this out. And that's why it's kept secret from us. Because one keeps coming back to, well, if the government is holding pieces of this puzzle. Um, I believe in part that's true. And I also believe, I'll take it a step further, I believe that, sure. the, that the powers that be are priming the pump. Uh, and again, I, I think the eventuality from our own personal technology, events will take place that can't be denied. I mean, everybody walks around with a camera phone these days. Things are going to happen uh, that just can't be denied. And, and, and they're starting to take place in some, some degree already, but uh, but to step back just a minute, several years ago I wrote an article entitled the, the, the Public's Perception of the UFO Phenomenon, and in part it's about mind control, and I don't mean mind control uh, in a purposeful sense. I believe it was a side effect of the debunking policy uh, early on of, of the government. I mean, the government involved corporations such as Disney early on, particularly right after the Robertson panel, and, and even before that. I mean, they, the, this thing was hushed up during Foo Fighter activity. I've posted uh, newspaper articles about UFOs approaching the Golden Gate Bridge in, in 1941. That was light about the, the commanders The commanders on the ground said one thing. The base base commanders said another. That happened on more than one occasion. Then you have the, the Battle of Los Angeles in 1942. That was light about which, by the way, that indicates that Roosevelt was in the know, which puts a completely different spin on things. <laughs> then, of course, then you get into Truman. But then you get into a conscious debunking effort. And you have to, understanding the public's mindset back in the 40s and 50s, this is when we believed our government was true blue. Whatever yeah. they told us, you know, that was verbatim. We took that for granted. We, we, we sucked it down hook, line, and sinker. So now it's, it becomes generational. Hey, those little green men, those silly things, that's nonsense. Our government says so. Then you grow up hearing that. Then it goes to the next generation. So in, in well, essence, certainly, yes, uh, certainly it, now we're, we're at a point where we know that the government, if nothing, rarely tells us the truth. We know that the government, for the most part, tells us what they think that we want to hear. And, and Frank, as much as we'd love to continue, we're sort of going to have to wrap up here. So we'd love to have you back to speak about these topics, especially given the fact that we're really starting to get to the meat of it here. What is this really all about? And I suppose uh, that our audience is going to have to wait for that answer. Frank Warren, thank you so much. Yeah, glad to be here, and, and believe me, there's some things bubbling up. Uh, it's, it's only going to get more interesting. And don't give up on Roswell. There, there's a lot more things <laughs> out there. I think it's going to get real real interesting as, as things continue to appear, although time, you know, the clock is ticking. But don't give up on it. There's, there's things right. going on out there. We'll have you back to tell us what's bubbling up. Sounds good. I really enjoyed it. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.